0: Of Sioux Falls Office of Adult Faith Formation. This is the Prairie Rome Companion with Doctor Chris Bergwald. Welcome to episode four of Prairie Rome Companion. Again, I am Doctor Chris Bergwald, and I wanted to thank you once more for tuning in. I, last, at the, at the end of episode three, I mentioned that the topic for today would be why be Catholic. Uh, I'm sorry, not why be Catholic. That's what we looked at last time, but rather being Catholic, how it's 24/7 job, so to speak. Uh, we're going to address that topic in the future, and we're going to have a different topic for this episode, uh, because in the meantime, I was able to get a hold of the new translate or the translator of a new translation of John Paul II's theology of the body. Uh, this is uh, a work which uh, many people are reading. As you'll hear in the interview, it's actually a, a text that sells more copies uh, year after year. In other words, from one year to the next, more copies are sold, which is is unlike the typical uh, book. Most, usually books sell a number, and then they drop, drop off from year to year. Theology of the Body is the opposite. The translator is Dr. Michael Waldstein, uh, and that's his last, German last name. It's W-A-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. And he is an Austrian-American scholar who lives and works in Austria uh, now. And we were able to do a phone interview, which you will hear uh, right after this, on this fourth episode of Prairie Rome Companion. So I hope you enjoy it. And as always, feel free to contact me uh, with any questions that you have about this or any other episodes of Prairie Rome Companion. Enjoy the interview. Dr. Waldstein, I want to thank you, first of all, for making time uh, out of your schedule to uh, be with us in this interview. Uh, for those who are listening to this, Dr. Waldstein is in Gaming, Austria, uh, a village in the foothills of the Alps, and he is uh, seven hours ahead of us. So thank you, Dr. Waldstein.
1: Thanks very much. I'm le- I'm happy to be here.
0: Good. Uh, why was before we get into the discussion about uh, your your new translation of the theology of the body, I thought it might be helpful uh, just if if you could talk a little bit about uh, about yourself, uh, how you came to be in in Austria, and uh, a little bit about your your own personal history and so on from there. So, any any chance we could get a short autobiography from you?
1: Sure. I grew up, was born and grew up in Salzburg. And when I finished my high school, wanted to go for one year to the U.S., to Thomas Aquinas College, but then decided to stay, met my wife there, uh, went on to study first philosophy in Dallas, then scripture in Rome, and finished with a doctorate in scripture at Harvard, then taught for eight years at Notre Dame, and ten years ago, began working here in, in Gaming at the family institute that Jean-Paul II founded.
0: Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned you met your wife. You have children then, I, I presume? We have
1: uh, eight children, four boys, four girls. The three oldest are out of the house. Uh, the two older ones married and the third in a monastery.
0: Oh, congratulations on all of them.
1: Yeah, it's great.
0: Um and are they, just out of curiosity, they, they stay in Europe or are any of them in the States?
1: Uh, the oldest is in London. The second is in Phoenix, Arizona, and the third is in a monastery near Vienna. Okay, So a bit scattered.
0: Yes, yes. And you grew up in Salzburg. Probably many Americans know that best from the Sound of Music musical, uh, right. but it is a beautiful—it's it's, it's my—I I was privileged to study in Austria, uh, in Gomming, for a semester, and Salzburg was my favorite city in, in uh, Austria. So I imagine it's probably your favorite as well, since you grew up there.
1: Yeah, it's a great city.
0: And you, you mentioned that you, uh, you, you told us where you studied. What are your, uh, the, your scholarly interests that have attracted you, uh, as you as you went through your own education and then as, you, as you've begun teaching?
1: My main interest was scripture. And my father, who is a historian of law, told me in reading texts, in doing historical work, the most important thing in his experience are the philosophical principles. So he said, uh, study philosophy first, get a doctorate in philosophy, which I did. Mm -hmm. And he said he would pay for it. That made it easier. Yes. And so uh, scripture was my love from the beginning, but I studied philosophy first for the sake of scripture. Mm -hmm. But then when coming here to Gaming, the emphasis shifted a little bit, not really away from scripture, but definitely to John Paul II. Ten years ago, um, well, I had been studying mainly the Gospel of John and Gnosticism. I did an edition of four Coptic, that is Egyptian, manuscripts of a thing called The Secret Book of John, comparing Mm -hmm. that with the Gospel of John and so on. But coming to Gaming meant beginning to do disciplined work on John Paul II, especially the theology of the body. That's sort of the
0: base text for us. For, for work at the ITI, which we'll talk about in a minute. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Gnosticism, and I, I can't, just because of the historical context of of this interview, uh, I, I don't know how much play it got in, in Austria, but, of course, there was the, the novel, the infamous novel, The Da Vinci Code, written by the American uh, author Dan Brown, which was made into a movie this year. Uh any, and a lot of people have talked about the, you know, Gnosticism or pseudo-Gnosticism. In that novel. I'm just curious: a, if you've read the novel, and b, what thoughts you might have on it.
1: I haven't read the novel in the entire, but uh, have seen parts. And it's very easy in the field of Gnostic studies to imagine things because our sources are very scarce. We we don't really know terribly much. And one can construct uh, beautiful imaginations
0: mm-hmm. let's let 's put it this way okay, okay, very good, and with regard to one more question with regard to scripture study any any particular contemporary scholars that uh, that you 've well i know that you 've moved your focus somewhat, but when you were studying any any contemporary scholars who uh, you might be able to recommend, because oftentimes uh, people are very interested in doing Bible studies and, and asking about good scholars. Any American or English uh, language authors or scripture st- scholars that you could recommend in particular to the, to uh, a layman's audience?
1: My, my two favorite scholars um, are two Jesuits I met at the Biblicum, and I had them as teachers there. Uh, one is called Albert Van Roy. That's V-A-N-H-O-Y-E. He was recently nominated a cardinal by uh, Pope Benedict. And the other, unfortunately already dead, the, the John scholar Ignace de la Poterie, mm-hmm. P-O-T-T-E-R-I-E. Both of them have books in English. Vanwa has written on Hebrews, and um, de la Poterie has a fantastic book, on the passion of Jesus in the Gospel of John and uh yeah, a number of other books as
0: well. He has a book on Mary in the, in the covenants. So yeah. Okay,
1: okay. Excellent, excellent book on Mary. Very good.
0: Okay, good. Thank you for, for those recommendations. Now you mentioned uh, 10 years ago you came to Gomming, and you are the founding president of the International Theological Institute, or at least I know that's part of the title. Could you talk a little bit more about ITI and how it came to be founded and how you found yourself as the uh, founding president?
1: Uh, It was founded by Pope John Paul II, who had been building up in the course of his pontificate institutes for the study of marriage and family all over the world. And this particular one he founded to be in Central Europe, a point where East and West could meet. Austria has a particular role in that way traditionally, that uh, East and West meet here. Mm -hmm. And we, given our roots We've always had a good number of American students with Austrian students and other Europeans and then Eastern European students. It's a very good mixture for both, I think. It's a learning experience have such different cultures. Um, the Holy See entrusted Cardinal Schönborn. He was then an auxiliary bishop of Vienna with setting up that institute. Mm-hmm. He was among the bishops the one who had the longest experience as a professor in in academic life. So that's the reason why he was entrusted. And his vision was to have the students have primary contact with the great masters of theology. So instead of us giving lectures as the main moment of learning, the main point when you have a systematic text in front of you, Uh, He has us read um, the great masters of theology from the fathers down to the present, Mm Balthasar included. Mm -hmm. Um, I had come to know Carl Schoenborn when he was still a professor, when he was teaching in Rome and I was studying in Rome and we talked about a possible reform of theology along those lines of reading the great masters. So, it, our relation went back um, to the early 80s when we first discussed those kind of reforms and now it was a chance to realize them
0: okay, Very good and, and now one question about that uh, the courses are in English primarily, exclusively or German as well? Yeah,
1: all, all the courses are in English that really is the international language uh, in Eastern Europe there used to be a lot of German. Uh, people learned a lot of German, but that's a past. Uh, English is the international language.
0: Okay, very good. Um, and is there a website for ITI, I should Yes, ask?
1: it's www.iti.ac, like Caesar, .at, like Tom.
0: Okay, very good. I, I think that probably some people might be interested in checking out the website. Uh, the... You mentioned how John Paul II had established uh, the the John Paul II uh, Institutes on Marriage and Family. Is ITI another one of those, or is it distinct from those institutions?
1: Not formally part, but we um, understand ourselves very much as part of the same founding intention. And uh, every year I used to go down, and I still do, to the central session once, uh, this is for a week in the summer, the leaders of the various sections of the John Paul's Institute come together in Rome to study together and also do administrative work together, and we've always been involved in that.
0: Okay, okay, very good. And now you, you, uh, Cardinal Schönborn is the, the chancellor, correct? Of, right. Is that a a personal relationship in the sense that it's with Cardinal per- Schönborn in particular, or will the Cardinal Archbishop of Vienna always be the Chancellor? I, hopefully Cardinal Schönborn is with us for many years to come, but just right. looking down the road.
1: I hope so too. Yes. Uh, we are in fact not in his diocese, and the usual thing is for uh, the Bishop of the Diocese in which an institution is located to be the Grand Chancellor. But in this case, the choice was made to uh, have him do it even though he was auxiliary of Vienna because of his background so that remains it, it's therefore at personam at the at the moment okay um, if he when he retires or if things become too much for him uh, we'll then have to see what the Holy See plans
0: okay and and speaking of the Holy what the Holy See may plan I am sure that you met with uh, John Paul II on on many occasions have you had it and, and we 're going to talk about him in a moment, but have you had an opportunity to meet with uh, Pope Benedict the
1: Yes, I was part of a circle of theologians, about twelve theologians who got together with Cardinal Ratzinger once a year. Oh, so I saw him very regularly. Um, people would present papers, and it would be a discussion a discussion. Uh, without any controversy, that is, uh, the, the, there was nothing, yeah, a peaceful discussion, let's put it this way. Okay. For the joy of sharing the truth. That's
0: the, the Schülerkreis, yes?
1: No. No. That's again something different. Okay. Um, uh, that exists too. That continued. The Schülerkreis, that is the circle of uh, Professor Ratzinger's doctoral students. That continues now in his papacy, whereas the other group, unfortunately, has stopped.
0: Okay, but it continued up until, I mean, j- just until last, or before he was elected, or had it stopped some time? Yeah, later?
1: just before he was uh, okay. elected. Okay, very good. Um, yeah.
0: And have you met with him since his um, elevation to the papacy?
1: Yes, but very briefly, I was able to show him the translation of the theology of the body. And he seemed to be very thrilled.
0: And and presumably he has uh, similarly favorable opinions towards ITI as John Paul II did.
1: I think so, yeah. Okay, very good. He's a very close friend of Colonel Schönborn, and so that's a very direct line to, to us.
0: Good and hopefully, I'm sure that will remain. Of course, uh, turning to John Paul II, I'm just curious before we discuss the theology of the body in particular. Um, any general thoughts you might ha- you have about John Paul II as the man and as Pope? Uh, his like what you think his legacy might be, for instance, for the world and for the church.
1: Yeah he he is amazing in the breadth of his uh, strengths. So he made many contributions uh, philosophical theological and in theology in, in, in various areas and his pastoral interest his political interests social teaching it's it's just stunning to to see the breadth of the man but marriage and the family is clearly at the heart of what he's doing and it was that from the beginning and I think the principal reason, well, uh, at least one factor in that, is that very early Karol Wojtyła, when he was still a student of Polish literature, uh, began to read St. John of the Cross and was fascinated with the spousal imagery mm-hmm. there in, in St. John of the Cross. And one of his first appointments after he became a priest was to work with university students. And... The way he worked with them was very personal. Uh, I've talked to some of them who were friends with him then. Of course, they're old couples now. But uh, they say that he had a tremendous sensitivity for what their situation was and empathy to help them along on their path toward marriage and then in the first years of marriage and so on. And he says in uh, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, actually page 123, it's easy to remember, one, two, three, (laughs) Uh, he says there that as a young priest, he came to love, love between man and woman, and it was the beauty of love that struck him in particular. So he says he wanted to dedicate himself to the service of beautiful love, because what people really want is a beautiful love. I think that's kind of a, a light theme, a light motif of his of all of his later work about marriage and family.
0: Mm-hmm. There, as you said, from the very beginning.
1: there from the beginning and there in this form that you have the combination between a very strong sensitivity for the beauty of love and a grasp of experience. The way he had empathy for those couples and was able to really accompany them that 's a powerful combination, mm-hmm. a sense of beauty and attention to experience that that can really change a person to have those two things addressed at one and the same time
0: right and and just and I want to move into the discussion of the, his theology of the body and then your translation. one last question just generally about him though. Um, some people, well, almost immediately, well, before he even passed away, were talking about how he would be referred to as John Paul the Great. And and at his funeral mass, uh, it sounded at least, watching it on TV, uh, to some of the commentators who were there, that, that, that the crowds were shining at one point, Magnus, Magnus the Great, John Paul the Great. Right. Uh, we have a new bishop here in the Diocese of Sioux Falls, just ordained at the end of October. And he, before he was... Uh, Ordained as a bishop, and now as our bishop, he in his writings would uh, would write, and, and he speaks about John Paul the Great. Just curious, what your thoughts are, and whether or not he will be uh, uh, one of the few popes referred to as Magnus in history.
1: I, I think so, uh, but I would guess that it'll probably be from the time of his canonization, and and not before right. officially. Okay, it's uh, striking that the the new pope has. Calls him great on numerous occasions, but hasn't switched to John Paul the Great from John Paul II. That's, yeah, that's a. Very good point.
0: And hopefully his canonization will be uh, before too long. I think, though, in our day and age, we're used to, at least in Western culture, uh, some people refer to it as the microwave culture, and we just want it to happen immediately. Uh,
1: a microwave saint, yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so now, uh, Dr. Waldstein, turning to the theology of the body, I, I, you spoke a little bit about, about the genesis of it in John Paul II, Carl Atiwa's, uh experience in his life. How did you become interested in his his work on the theology of the body.
1: When I studied uh, in Rome, it was exactly in the years that Pope John Paul II preached the theology of the body. But uh, that is, I, and I went to a number of the um, of the audiences, and so I heard a number of the talks, but they were. They, they quite passed me by. Mm-hmm. So I was there, but didn't know what it was really that I, I was hearing. It was then later when I studied philosophy, I studied with a group of phenomenologists close to Dietrich von Hildebrand, mm-hmm. and there are many connections with Scheler, and so cross-connections with John Paul II. And there, for the first time, I read Wojtyla, but not yet, theology of the body, but it became very clear, say, love and responsibility, his fascination with the love between man and woman. It was then, ten years ago, when I began to, as the founding president of this institute here in, in Austria, that I began to study the theology of the body systematically, because it's the basic text for all the institutes that Pope John Paul II founded, the John Paul II Institute, and uh, ours as well. It's the text in which he lays out most fully his vision of love between man and woman.
0: And and why do you think, then, looking at the text in particular... what is the importance of theology of the body for for the church and the world you, i mean it, it's as you said it's it's the, the basic text for so many different institutions in the church what is what's the relevance of of this this body of teaching for the church and for the world in our time
1: yeah it's it's a work of extraordinary qualities it has on the one hand a very acute conceptual um, approach. He coined many phrases for example, spousal meaning of the body or um, the. he talks about the man of concupiscence and then the man of the call so uh, a number of phrases that are unusual but you understand them as he, as he goes along. That's one striking characteristic. So it's conceptually very sharp but at the same time, has a strong poetic power. I think he, and that comes from his experience. His, his falling in love with John of the Cross, with the writings of John of the Cross, as a 21-year-old, he learned Spanish right away to read the, the poetry of Saint John in in Spanish. He himself wrote poetry down uh, through the years and plays. So he has a strong poetic sense. And in the theology of the body, that poetic sense is deployed in portraying the beauty of love between man and woman. So it's it's a theological text. It is that. It has many philosophical arguments in it. But one of its great strengths is a kind of spiritual poetry, much like um, St. John of the Cross. Not so much poetry in the sense of um, actual poetic form it's prose, but it's it's a very dense, powerful prose with a experiential charge in it that's the experience of many people who read the theology of the body mm-hmm. It's not just another book of theology. here you see you you feel the the spirit and and the light of john paul II. yeah
0: and, and that's been the the experience that you and your students have had as you've read
1: it. Yeah, definitely. Very good. It's a text that doesn't leave you cold. Um, Some texts of theology are extremely deep and sharp, but uh, they leave you cold. Maybe that's that's our fault. But at any rate, the the theology of the body doesn't.
0: You you mentioned earlier the... uh the 20th century great Swiss theologian uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, who referred to how theology be- should be theology done, I believe, on the knees, uh, so to right. speak. And it, it it seems safe to say that theology of the body is exactly that kind of theology.
1: Yeah. Um, so it we were particularly happy uh, the combination of having Cardinal Schönborn as our Grand Chancellor who has not only a not, not only an intellectual but also a spiritual vision mm-hmm. and then to have that text in a way mirror the same combination of strengths that that was a great joy
0: absolutely it, it... And you mentioned talking about you, you mentioned earlier when you were a student in Rome. You were there. You heard them, but they sort of passed you by. Imagine that—that yeah. that was you. Probably weren't the only one for whom the right. the addresses passed the catechesis actually passed you by. A lot of questions. Uh, or oftentimes one of the bigger questions, I should say, that that seems to arise about the theology of the body is, who is exactly is the intended audience? And I know that uh, in your introduction to the translation, you you speak about how the universal church is. To put a more fine point on that, uh, who within the universal church do you think is the audience? Everybody? I mean, the, the actual entire uh, church? Or is it really written for uh, those who have uh, not necessarily doctorates in theology and philosophy, but uh, a a greater degree of education in those fields.
1: Yeah, it's a difficult text, and uh, even seasoned theologians and philosophers find themselves struggling with it. But at the same time, there's something peculiar about the text. It's also accessible to people if you give them guidance, and they're, they're now a number of people in the United States, like Christopher West, Mm -hmm. who have the skill to, as it were, entice people in, to give them a taste of what is in that and who lead them to the theology of the body. So it's, it's not like, say, the Critique of Pure Reason by Kant, which is a work for philosophers and anybody else who... Strays inside that book uh, feels lost in a maze. Mm-hmm. Um, the difficulty is so great. The theology of the body is different. It it has a dimension that appeals, I think, to any intelligent Catholic. Okay,
0: so so the the, the typical uh, Catholic layman or laywoman um, yeah. should be able to pick yes, up them. absolutely and and. You mentioned Christopher West, one of the the, the more well known and, rightfully so, I think, popularizers. Two questions, sort of, from the whole uh, question of of those who are who popular popularize the theology of the body. First of all, at, at what point should the uh, should the the, the lay person move beyond the popularizer and to the text itself? And sort of conversely, with that, then are there any cons to popularizing?
1: Yeah. It's interesting that uh, the path taken by many of the popularizers is a path from originally presenting the theology of the body uh, that is producing another text, their text, in which the theology of the body is presented. They've moved to more and more leading people into the text of the theology of the body. I think that's a very good sign if the, the popularizing set itself up as a as a second discourse next to the theology of the body and people weren't led to john paul ii's own words I, I think there would be something wrong with that but fortunately exactly this is the development that christopher west and a number of other people have have taken so it is anastasia a- northrup for example and Katrina
0: Mm -hmm. Zeno. So really the ideal is that you would move, uh, as you mentioned is happening, that you would move at some point to uh, engagement with the text itself. Right. Okay, very good. Uh, And and before we get to your translation, one last uh, question about, just more broadly about the theology of the body. Uh, George Weigel in his semi-definitive biography of John Paul II refers to it as a ticking time bomb, the theology of the body, that is, a ticking theological time bomb that is set to go off over the next decades and centuries of the Church. Would you agree with that metaphor?
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I think this is a very insightful metaphor, as, as, as George Weigel usually is. Yes. Um, and one I can observe it in my own life, I had no notion, or very little notion, when I heard some of these catechesis, what the stature of this work really was and how life-changing it is. And as I began to study it and was drawn into it, I saw, woo the, the the power of that work is is really incredible. So it... And it, if you look at the United States, what, what has happened, the Daughters of St. Paul say... The Theology of the Body is the only book they've ever published that sells more copies every year. Mm-hmm. The usual thing is that people buy a book at the beginning, or maybe there's a, some other wave, but in general the tendency is down. But there's a now a, a movement happening in the United States and other countries as well of people who read The Theology of the Body. So I, I think what George Weigel is talking about is happening.
0: Yeah, that's very, and I hadn't heard that before, very interesting is you noted that the sales of the Theology of the Body actually increase from year to year. Yeah. Hmm. Now, uh, of course, we have now your new translation of the Theology of the Body. When did you uh, realize, or when did you come to an awareness of, of the fact that there may be a need, uh, or there was a need for a new translation of the text?
1: When I taught the text here in Gamming, uh, this goes back 10 years now. I, since I studied in Rome, I can also speak Italian, and so I looked at the original, the Italian, as he delivered it, and I noticed maybe the first thing to say the old translation is in many ways an excellent translation. The people that did it were theologically and philosophically trained and they also had a very good linguistic sense. But uh, the problem is they had these catecheses one by one in the course of five years, as if they were separate sermons. Only uh, as he was going along, and then especially only at the end, could you see the whole big work in front of you as a carefully planned work with... um, some language that's very technical and that's peculiar to the work. So there are a lot of inconsistencies of translation as you would expect if somebody doesn't have the work in front of him as a whole. Mm -hmm. I noticed those inconsistencies early on when I was teaching it and then began um, putting a text out for the students that corrected some of these items. And as I went along more and more items Um, I corrected. But then in the end, it was when I was working on my book about the theology of the body that I realized I didn't, to have a clear grasp of the text as a whole, I needed a firmer English text. And it was then that I decided to to try to do a new
0: translation. Now, one of the to me, really interesting things that you mentioned in your introduction, uh, something that I hadn't heard before, is that there was uh, a Polish, completed, uh, apparently, Polish manuscript that John Paul II, uh, then Carl Wojtyla, brought with him, uh, I bl- you can correct me on this, but brought with him to Rome before he was elected. Uh, that text served, acted as the basis for the weekly catechesis on the theology of the body after he was elected as pope. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. He had, he had finished it. It seemed. Uh, we looked at the manuscript in the papal archive, in the Trumpel II archive, and it seemed ready to be sent to the printer. Um, he, what he did then for the catechesis is he divided the text into roughly 20 minute sections and often wrote a little introduction and a conclusion, but the substance was what he had uh, written in that book. Of course, Uh, the authentic text, that is the the text that has authority as coming from the papal magisterium, is the Italian text. So Mm -hmm. here you have the strange situation, you have an original Polish text, but but the real original, the the authentic original is the Italian, because that's what he delivered as Pope.
0: So when you, as a translator, come to the text and are are trying to make a a critical edition of a translation which do you do you i don't know about your facility with polish but which do you use then as the basis for your translation
1: i wrote a letter to pope john paul ii four months actually before he died asking that question and i got a letter back from uh the sostituto that is the person who does his his mail or much of his mail that it should be based on the italian
0: so, so the Italian is the so when you translated, you worked from the Italian audiences as they were delivered. That's right. Okay. What role then does does the Polish play? Any sort of uh, auxiliary role in your work? Yeah, an,
1: an extremely important role. Um, when the work was published, well, um, I should go back. In the original Polish work, he has an elaborate structure. There's a division into two parts, and each part has three chapters, and then the the chapters are subdivided into subsections, and those again are subdivided into subsections. That table of contents and those headings in the text dropped out when he delivered the catechesis one by one, because, of, of course, he couldn't say, we're now in chapter three of part two, subsection 14, or or whatever the case may be. So people kind of forgot about those headings, but they're extremely precious for understanding the order of thought. Many people, when they read the theology of the body, one difficulty they have is seeing how the argument really goes, step by step, what the order is. Now, uh, this English edition will be the first edition, apart from the Polish, Mm -hmm. that will have those headings in it. I think Mm. that's one of the main advances of the new translation.
0: So you get the overall uh, sense of the flow of the argument. Yeah. Okay. And in terms of the text itself then, uh, because I think you refer to how there are some, if you compare the Polish to the Italian, some instances where the catechetical audience developed or lengthened what was in the Polish original, other instances where it it shortened or perhaps even removed what was in the Polish original. Right? Uh, How do you handle those issues in the translation?
1: Yeah, the the main difference uh, is in the original Polish, there's a much longer treatment of the Song of Songs and of Tobit. And he had actually used that whole text and made uh, turned it into catechesis, that is, he had divided it up. It had been translated into Italian. It was ready for delivery. And we saw in the archives then he cut the text down, that is, he cut actually the Italian text down from six catechesis on the Song of Songs to three, from three on Tobit to just one catechesis. It it may be... We don't know what the reason was. I'd love to talk to his secretary and uh, find out some of those details. It may have been simply time pressure that he had to get over. or Yeah.
0: In any case, but we do have both of those in this translation that you've
1: done. Now, in, in the translation, the way I did it is on facing pages, you have the shorter and the longer version so that you can see exactly... Um, the two different texts where where they where the one has more than the other
0: okay, okay, very good. Now you mentioned that besides the Polish, this is the first uh, edition in any language that 's going to have uh, the the original headings that John the Second had intended, just curious about the other language editions uh, in in general do they tend to have the same translation problems that the English does, or are there, apart from the Italian at least, uh, I'm thinking here maybe the German and French editions, if you're German I imagine you're familiar, do they have the same problems, or or, are their translations require less uh, reworking?
1: They they have exactly the same problems, because the situation was exactly the same for them. They got these audiences uh, one by one, and had to deal with them without having the whole text uh, in front of them. And this, in Spanish, a new translation was already done. It, it was done by the Jean Paul II Institute in Valencia in Spain. So that's available. Okay. Uh, that was a decisive step. But in German, fortunately, before the German edition was published, a very good scholar, Norbert Martin, sat down and went over the whole... German translation. So that's in much better shape, but it's out of print. Okay. Um, the theology of the body hasn't uh, woken up the German-speaking world yet, but it'll happen.
0: Very good. And any idea about the French?
1: I haven't looked in detail at the French, but uh, only at the at the structure that they give to the whole work, and it's, it's quite different from what Jean-Paul II has.
0: Okay. And you mentioned uh, you talked about how the translators had to work quickly, and that's because uh, they, they, they're the translators for the official Vatican newspaper, and they had to quickly translate in a matter of just a few days uh, exactly. from from the Italian original to the next week's language edi- weekly language edition for their particular language. Is that correct? Right. Okay.
1: Right. Okay. Uh, now, one of the and it was actually people from the Secretariat of State who who did that
0: responsible. For yeah. that, and, and uh, one question that I, I meant to ask, just more broadly about the theology of the body, apart from this particular translation, uh, I've I've read, or heard, and read a criticism that, uh, uh, somewhat of a strange criticism to me, but that it's it's. This is just all about sex, and and there's too much sex, in a sense, uh, sort of almost inappropriate for uh, uh, this degree of catechesis. Uh, Is the theology of the body just about sex?
1: uh, No, definitely not. Um, It's about many things, although the union of man and woman is is one thing that it does discuss. It discusses with great delicacy and uh, tact, But there's a long section in there about the total gift of self, which celibate people make also a bodily spousal gift to Christ. And that, for him, has a tremendous weight. That is, he sees the vocation to marriage and the vocation to the consecrated life as depending on each other, that neither the one nor the other can exist fully without the other.
0: And so, and and, and that's just one demonstration of the fact that the theology of the body is not just a a sexual ethics, but as it goes to the heart of of the the Christian mystery, does it not?
1: It's a whole anthropology that is in the course of thinking about the relation between man and woman. He has many things to say about the body that really develop a a comprehensive anthropology, Mm -hmm. comprehensive account of the human person.
0: And and then and you a lot of these uh, the the questions that I've asked you and your answers are, are found in your uh, your introduction, which runs, I think, at least in the published versions, roughly seventy pages. What was or what is the goal uh, for your for your introduction? Was it was that it meant as a general introduction, or do you have a more particular or specific purpose in writing it?
1: Yeah, I had a specific purpose. Um, many. People I've talked to who have studied the theology of the body have a hard time putting it into context. They have a sense that a deep conversation is going on in that work, but that they have just come in, as it were, on the conversation and have missed the first couple of hours of the the dialogue. I know when that happens to me in in real life, it's sometimes very hard to catch up with what people are talking about. So the purpose of my introduction is mainly to supply the earlier part of that discussion, starting with Thibaut as a 21-year-old, his encounter with St. John of the Cross, then his further studies in which he studied in particular Max Scheler, the phenomenologist, and behind Scheler, the the great towering figure of, of Kant, Immanuel Kant, so I, I go through the seven major works that were, they were published before becoming Pope to, yeah, to portray that dialogue that precedes the theology of the body so that then you see what exactly the questions are that the theology of the body addresses.
0: And you mention in the, the well, a the couple of things actually come to mind. First of all, you, you say very clearly in the introduction that if you want to, you can skip over these sev- next several sections if you just want to get to the overall sense and and don't want to get into the the, the context to the degree that you do in the introduction. Uh, but also you, you refer to, and you've mentioned uh, in this interview, uh, a book that you've been working on for some time on the context and argument of the theology of the body. Can you tell us anything about that text?
1: Yeah, uh, it'll have three parts. The first will be a more detailed account of that dialogue that I was just talking about, of Waitiba entering into discussion with, um, especially with Shela and Kant. The second part will be on the debate about the nature and ends of marriage in early part of the 20th century, which is when Wetiwa began, when he wrote Love and Responsibility in particular. That debate, I think, is very important to see then how he moves in the theology of the body. The third part will then be just a tracing of the argument, trying to make sense of uh, its steps. Why this here and that there? Why first this and then that? And so on.
0: And can you give us any hints as to when we might be able to see this in print?
1: Uh, I'm working on it, but I think it's at least a year away.
0: Okay, okay. From publication, or or a couple of years yet from publication as well.
1: Uh, a year from being handed into the uh, publishing company, and then it usually takes a couple of months. Uh, that is not just two or three, but sometimes half a year, for it to get through the process
0: and are you writing it in english or will there need to be tra- english. okay okay so right. do, okay very good okay uh anything else that you think that would uh, that that people might be interested to hear about uh, the theology of the body in general or your translation in particular
1: yeah have have courage and pick up the book ignore the introduction for the <laughs> beginning and and plunge right into the the text of the of the pope himself that's i think the most important
0: Okay, well, thank you, first of all, uh, for for this work and for your work, Dr. Waldstein. And thank you as well for taking the time out of your evening uh, there in Gomming to to be with us on the phone today.
1: Thanks very much.
0: Okay, God bless you. You too. Bye-bye. So there was our interview with Dr. Michael Waldstein, founding president of the International Theological Institute in Gaming, Austria, and uh, translator or author of the new translation of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. A- again, as always, if you have any questions about this episode of Prairie Rome Companion, please feel free to call me or email me. The phone number is 605-988-3763. And the email address is cbergwald, that's C-B-U-R-G-W-A-L-D, at sfcatholic.org. S is in Sue, F is in Falls, catholic.org. And in the next episode, we will turn back to the topic of uh, how being Catholic is a 24-7 job. God bless you.